of the second, Omal cries out, I have a thousand spirits in one breast. In the same play, the king himself reveals that play I in one person, many people. It is an odd but insistent emphasis. As Hazlitt said of Shakespeare, he had only to think of anything in order to become that thing, with all the circumstances belonging to it. He had a preternaturally sensitive imagination, which could clothe itself in the being of another. This gift or capacity expresses itself in terms of another insistent Shakespearean theme. I am not what I am. Who is it that can tell me who I am? Since there is an element of Shakespeare in all the myriad heroes and heroines of his plays, they must also remain fundamentally mysterious. They are not governed by rational choices. Their logic is always the logic of intuition and of dream. Their dilemma often concerns the role that they must play, and the part they must assume in the world. It is the secret of his heroines. His characters are witty, and cryptic, and whimsical. They are sometimes inscrutable, and more than a little fantastical. As Ophelia remarks to her father of Hamlet's behaviour, I do not know, my lord, what I should think. They partake of their maker. That is also why Shakespeare's characters still seem modern, since they are based upon diversity and indeterminacy. It is sometimes said that he invented individual consciousness on the stage, but it would be more true to say that taking his cue from Montaigne, he conveyed the idea of consciousness as unfixed and unstable. This was almost certainly not a deliberate ploy on his part, but rather the natural expression of his own genius. It also reflects an actor's consciousness. It has been remarked that in Shakespeare's plays the language of self-knowledge is the language of acting. By impersonating others, he became more himself. Or to put it another way, Shakespeare understood himself by becoming someone other. He often resorts to metaphors of the stage, and one of his favorite phrases is to play the part. His lovers learn to perform and improvise before one another. His most interesting characters are actors at heart. No other dramatist of his age maintains such an emphasis. He did not owe this interest to the fact that he was a player. Rather, he became an actor because he already possessed that interest. In the speech by Theseus on the nature of imagination in A Midsummer Night's Dream, there is an apparently fluent and straightforward passage. The poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. But in the vocabulary of the Elizabethan drama, shape was the name for the actor's costume, habitation for his place upon the stage, and name for the scroll on the actor's chest, revealing his identity. When in his speech Hamlet adverts to this goodly frame the earth, to this sterile promontory, and this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, his audience would know that he was referring in turn to the walls of the theatre, to the bare stage, and to the roof of the penthouse above his head, spangled with stars. The theatre was the occasion for the speech. Shakespeare is saturated with the language of the stage. Who would dream in all his talk of shadows that shadow was a technical term for the actor? Thus at the close of A Midsummer Night's Dream, when Robin Goodfellow declares that if we shadows have offended, he is speaking for the cast. When the actor playing Buckingham in All is True declares that I am the shadow of poor Buckingham, he is making an overtly theatrical reference. The connection also lends resonance to Macbeth's remark that life's but a walking shadow, a poor player. In one of Shakespeare's most theatrical plays, Richard II, there is a constant interplay between shadow as reflection of what is real 
and shadow as insubstantiality or unreality itself. There are shadows everywhere in Shakespeare's plays. There is also a curious fact about shadows that he understood very well. However insubstantial they may be, they lend depth and delight to any view. Shakespeare sees his characters as an actor would, not as a poet. It is noticeable, for example, how many of his characters blush. That is for the stage. Dickens said that he had only to imagine a character and that character would appear before him. Shakespeare had the same power in Excelsis. And the central point is that Shakespeare sees before him not just the character, but the actor playing the character. That is why he, of all contemporary playwrights, had the surest command of stagecraft. It was an instinct. He saw gestures. He saw groups of actors moving across the stage. There are some scenes that are dominated by one gesture or by a series of parallel gestures, such as kneeling or sitting on the ground as a token of abasement. Characteristically, a scene with many characters will be preceded by a scene with few characters, both as a principle of contrast and as a means of giving time for the larger cast to be assembled. He also gave 95% of the lines to the 14 principal actors in the company. This was partly a matter of seniority, but it was also the carefully planned economy of a practical manager. It permitted rehearsals to go ahead without the presence of the hired men. It has become clear that he saw certain performers, Will Kemp or Richard Burbage or John Sinclair, in the roles he had assigned to them in his imagination. Most of the actors had their own particular speciality at which he aimed his art. He heard their voices. He knew in advance their individual presence upon the stage. Why does Gertrude say that Hamlet is fat and scant of breath when fighting Laertes, if Burbage himself were not inclined to perspire during the dueling scene? There is no other indication of Hamlet's weight. The development of Burbage as an actor had a direct influence upon the growing depth and complexity of Shakespeare's tragic heroes. They also gradually age with Burbage. Shakespeare wrote progressively more challenging parts for Kemp, too, leading him up to the supreme achievement of Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream, where his genius for clowning is touched by lyricism and by mystery. There are some theatrical historians who have explained the development of his art in terms of different players and different venues. It has been asserted, for example, that he wrote the cheerful comedies of his early period for Kemp and composed the bittersweet comedies of his middle years for Kemp's successor. It is an argument that has the undoubted advantage of being incapable of proof. It does have the merit of emphasizing, however, the close bond between play and players. There were no doubt also occasions when Shakespeare took up suggestions from his fellow actors on matters of staging or even speech. His amenability to actors is evident elsewhere. It has been remarked by generations of actors that his lines, once remembered, remain in the memory. They are, to use the word of the great 19th century actor Edmund Keane, stickable. This, of course, was an enormous advantage for the first players, who might have to repeat several plays on various occasions during one theatrical season. The words are also attuned to the movement of the human voice, as if Shakespeare could hear what he was writing down. They possess a natural speech emphasis, quite unlike the stiffness of Kidd or of Marlowe. Actors have, in addition, commented upon the fact that the cue for movement or stage business is implicit within the dialogue itself. He was also able to exploit the dramatic possibilities of silence in many of the plays. He used off-stage cries or sounds to suggest turns in the plot, like the knocking at the gate in Macbeth or the shouts of the crowd in Julius Caesar. There never has been a more professional or accomplished master of all the devices of the stage.
fluency or fluidity is also the form of his thought. He delights in pairs, in doubleness, in oppositions. He cannot conceive a thought or sentiment without reversing it. He is preoccupied by change and contrast, as if only in the play of differences can the life of the world be expressed. The clown continues his farce as Romeo enters the tomb of Juliet, and as Hamlet stands by the grave of Ophelia. In the quick changes of the stage, the solemn councils of the court are followed by the pantomimic revels of the boar's head tavern in Eastcheap. The king and the fool are true companions in the storm. Tolstoy complained that these scenes in King Lear were barren of meaning or consolation, but for Shakespeare there is no meaning other than these two bare figures upon the stage. Lear can no more exist without the fool than the fool can exist without Lear. Thus is the spirit of difference and of opposition played out. In the most sublime reaches of Shakespeare's art there is no morality at all. There is only the soaring human will in consort with the imagination. It is in the spirit of change and difference, too, that the plays are best understood. They seem positively to invite conflicting notions of their meaning, so that Henry V, for example, can be played as heroic, epic, or as cruel bombast. Shakespeare's art is open to both interpretations equally. The nature of Hamlet is eternally in question. The ending of King Lear is endlessly debated. The purpose of Troilus and Cressida is now all but lost in the fog of conflicting critical commentaries. In that play, he establishes a code of value through the speeches of Ulysses, which is then undermined or ignored by all of the characters in the play. Shakespeare grew up with a profound sense of ambiguity. It is one of the informing principles both of his life and of his art. In the plays themselves, the themes and situations are endlessly mirrored in the plots and subplots, so that the reader or...